I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Christopher Bedford and his institution, the Baltimore Museum of Art, have been in the news a lot recently. And I really wanted him to have an opportunity to come and speak with all of you, our listeners, about what it is he's working on, what he's trying to achieve at the Baltimore Museum of Art, and why the efforts that he has made have garnered a lot of attention in the media and why what he's doing matters, even though it's really difficult. I think you'll really enjoy our conversation, and we will get there right after we hear from our sponsors. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else, and I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y-K-L-E-E.com backslash Heidi. And they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable, high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestincoaspen.com That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O ASPEN.com and mention that you heard about Best & Co on my podcast to receive the special discount. 
Christopher Bedford is the director of the Baltimore Museum of Art. He was appointed there in May of 2016. Prior to joining the Baltimore Museum of Art, Christopher led the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis University in Massachusetts for four years. In November of 2019, it was announced that the Baltimore Museum of Art would only purchase works made by female identifying artists in 2020 as part of an effort to work towards re-correcting the canon. He and I discuss what putting art in the basement means, the decency and care of John Waters, reliance on attendance as revenue, living our principles in museums, philosophies of deaccessioning, the Sotheby's auction on October 28, 2020, the urgency of caring for museum staff, having too much art while being undercapitalized, how museums can be relevant today, the importance of close listening, what a civic museum could look like, and art that gives you an otherwise impossible idea. Good morning, Christopher. How's your day starting? Uh, it started with a uh, endless sequence of Zoom meetings and conference calls, as is, has become convention, which I do from my basement, which is not very glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somehow the word basement right. just never implies anything glamorous. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, at the Aspen Art Museum, we, we had these amazing galleries on the lower level. And that's actually, as you know, where the Lisa Yuskovich show that we did together was. And periodically people would refer to the lower level as the basement or the basement galleries. And I would always say, you know, with just a straight face, lower level. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe that would work at your house, too. Maybe. I'm not I'm not sure. I think that this is most categorically a basement. (laughs) (laughs) That's very generous. We're dealing with something very clear here. It's interesting you should say, though, um, and I don't know whether this is in any way pertinent to this podcast. Maybe it is. But so at the BMA, we have a, a, a level which might be referred to as the basement level or the first floor. Um, it's sort of interchangeable on that front. And like so many encyclopedic museums over the, across the country, there is a sort of, there is an unspoken privileging of certain collecting areas that pervades our entire museum. So those primary floors, quote unquote, primary floors of the museum are home to the European collection, the revered cone collection, um, the the contemporary wing and in the basement quote unquote there is a clustering of non-western collections which has been in place historically and clearly there's a there's an implication of hierarchy there that we're trying very very hard to undo particularly by juxtaposing those non-western collecting areas with a new prince drawings and photographs study center as well as a center for the study of matisse so it's it's really interesting because you know part of pushing a museum like that forward is trying to trying to undo um, patterns and habits and structures that have been in place for centuries. So it's um, challenging. And we all know that nomenclature matters. Mm-hmm. The way we title things, the way we reference things, um, there's a ton of both power and um, presumed hierarchy in, in and around a lot of language also. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I think when you 
ascend the steps at the BMA, just to speak about my home institution, you're walking through this extraordinary Micheline Thomas installation and you're faced with our changing exhibition galleries, which is sort of the core of our brain trust. And if you go left from there, you enter our European galleries. And that's the vast majority of people take that route. And there's this kind of phenomenology of elevation involved. You feel you're being enriched. You feel you're in the presence of greatness. And that you don't have that same phenomenological experience if you're heading, you know, left downstairs into the basement area. And I do, so I do think it matters enormously. So interesting. We are going to do a bit of a shorter conversation today than we often do because you have uh, an announcement, which I, I read right before I got on the call about John Waters. Yes. Why don't we Why don't we talk a little bit about that, and and then we'll we'll get into some of the other media um, that you've had the opportunity to address in recent weeks as well. Oh, certainly. Well, I mean, it's it's a pleasure to speak about John because he's um, you know, one of the mantras that we use at the BMA to structure all of our programs is wholly local and wholly global. And I think one thing that's distinguished our program that I'm very proud of is um, an investment in. Baltimore-based artists, particularly black artists living and working in Baltimore, that's sort of the creative engine of the city. And so we've been able to draw on that creative capital to enrich ourselves and inform ourselves, and then also telegraph that to the broader world. But I think way before, you know, I was doing any of that work four years ago, John Waters was the global phenomenon, global icon, that's also the local treasure. And I think, I think it was William Burroughs that said he was the the Pope of Trash, which I always found fantastic. Yeah, amazing. Yes. So one, one of the articles said that he was the self-anointed Pope of Trash, but it was in fact William Burroughs who called him that, which I think is exponentially cooler. And way, way cooler. Yes. Wait. And so he's been he's been collecting all his life. Um, he's giving us 372 absolutely extraordinary objects. Um and I think they they chart his relationships with artists and his involvement with the cultural world, ranging from Andy Warhol to Wolfgang Tillmans, Nan Golden, Cindy Sherman, and everybody in between over years and years and years. And you can sort of sense in the collection the proximity of John the Collector to these artists as makers and their incredible admiration for him. So if you look at the Times article, for instance, the way that Cindy Sherman speaks about her reverence for John Waters, I just think is is a remarkable thing. And um, so I don't think it's just about how great and big the collection is and what it will do principally for our works on paper collection as well as our, as well as our contemporary collection. I think it is about the narrative of John's life and his status as a local treasure and the BMA as a home to that story. And in, you know, in addition to the collection, of work by other artists will also be the greatest repository of John's artwork anywhere in the world as a consequence of his generosity. And I think, so he's, um, you know, he's visionary and he, he was quite, and he would say this, um, a little estranged from the museum for a period of almost 20 years, he didn't meaningfully interact. And as a consequence of our board chair, Claire Zamoski Siegel, who we're gonna talk about later in the podcast, I'm sure, um, we sort of befriended John, re-befriended John, and drew him back into the fold. So, so certainly there was stewardship involved in securing this gift, but ultimately it was John who came to us and said, you know, I believe in the city, I believe in your museum, I believe in your leadership, and I want to give you this, this collection, and I want to know that that's done. And uh, 
So it has resulted in a deluge of attention. And I think it has a great deal to do with this unique cultural producer that is John Waters. I think that's right. And sometimes from the outside, it, it seems as if there's no correlation between these different kind of significant moments in in the press for the evolution or the development of an institution. But we know from behind the scenes that, you know, in, in the best case scenario, it's all orchestrated and it's it's years of, of stewardship. And um, and a lot of that is, you know, invisible to the greater public, but that is part of working for for the greater good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I think it's important sometimes to pull back the curtain a little bit because I think gifts of that magnitude don't arrive at museums without a very pronounced mutual trust. And that's built over a really long time, really slowly. And um, so we're very proud. I'm very happy. It was a good day. It's kind of fun for me too, because the first time that I ever went to Baltimore, I went on the train with Doug and Mike Starn and Doug's girlfriend at the time and and Anne. And we went for the opening of the Starn's exhibition at the Baltimore Museum. And we went for the opening and the dinner. And I mean, I was literally a kid. And then we went out after and John took us to a bar. Uh, I still remember what it looks like. It was, you know, (laughs) bright red. And I mean, I was just incredibly... And it was super tight, you know, we like squeezed in past all these people. And of course, you know, they were thrilled. Uh, Everyone in the bar was thrilled to have him be there because he was always, I think, such an icon in in town and and such a celebrity. And this is a long time ago. So uh, anyway, it was like really exciting for me to be there. And I I, I wasn't, I was, you know, kind of on the periphery of of, um, the excitement of the evening but at one point he turned and looked at me and this will tell you how long ago it was. I had like a yellow ribbon on my coat for, um, you know, one of the wars that was going on. And, and he said, you know, like, what's that on your coat? And I said, I said, well, you know, it's, it's about, um, it's about the support for the troops. And, um, he said, you support the war. And I said, no, of course I don't support the war, but you know, I, I support the troops. Um, you know, wouldn't you, you know, and he said, no, if they reached out to me to, you know, inscript me, I would tell them I was a fucking queer and I wouldn't fucking go. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, I think I was like 19, <laughs> maybe, and, yep. uh, you know, and I, so I was so excited to have his attention. And then I was like, oh my God, you know, like these are things that I, you know, hadn't really learned yet about like how to kind of be in the world and navigate these complicated conversations. And anyway, I'm like blushing now as I'm even like telling you that story about, you know, how naive I was in in so many ways about so many things, but um, we learn from artists and we learn sometimes quickly and, and less um, elegantly than, than we might hope. (laughs) Yeah. But that, that is fantastically vivid. It's funny. Even your delivery evokes his voice to me. I can, I am, I can picture him saying exactly those words. And if you could see me, you could see that I'm beaming in talking about it because he's so, um, you know, I think that there's this amazing duality in John and I've talked about this with him and I've talked about it, um, in the press a little bit, but on one hand, he is the Pope of trash and he's immensely vulgar 
and he uses vulgarity that that makes even the person with the thickest skin you know that makes your eyebrows raise and makes you slightly uncomfortable you're caught off guard and then you're sort of in his hands in the conversation and knowing him even as well as I do he can do that to me instantaneously but then at the same time there is and you can see it in the collection there's this incredible sensitivity and gentleness um and decency and respect for artists and respect for other people and i've always found that with him took me a while i think to discern but there is a public persona that is overwhelming and slightly beyond just slightly beyond that there is a decency and a care for people that i find highly unusual and um i think you can sense a lot of that in the collection is the particularly that investment in portraiture like sort of gentle portraiture there's a there's an image um a portrait of john waters by wolfgang tillmans that we brought into the collection i think claire siegel actually bought it for the collection maybe 2 years ago and he's fully and completely off guard he's sitting in a domestic um domestic space his hand is sort of draped casually over the back of his head and that that to me is the quintessential john waters image that he's that easy that position yeah that's him yeah so it's a i i view it as a great privilege to know him i really do yeah i i mean that was definitely one of the you know when you look back on your life there are moments that that become kind of iconic and yeah. that was definitely one of them <laughs> yeah yeah no question no question anyway Let's let's talk about the collection of the Baltimore Museum and actually before we get into that let's talk a little bit about museums in general and there's there's no um secret right that this has been an incredibly complicated year um and there's no secret either that you know from the work that that we did um with the Association of Art Museum Directors um there there was an inkling even before covid and um the incredible social unrest and the economic challenges this year that you know museums hadn't necessarily evolved um to a place where they could um be permanently sustainable um and or necessarily relevant so talk if you will about your perspective about where museums are in, in terms of culture and some of the the larger challenges i mean i think that it's just you've asked the big fabulous completely open ended question about the nature of the mechanism and its relationship to cultural relevance and um you know i would say that broadly speaking we have had not had the metabolism institutionally to engage with changing times or with the 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 metabolism of the mainstream for a long time and i think we've been really actually consciously or unconsciously indifferent to that necessity so um yes there are there are times when it takes 11 or 12 years to gestate an exhibition so a, you know a good example of that would be an amazing show we did in 2017 called Matisse Diebenkorn so that really was i think almost 12 years in development and realization but then on the other hand i think and particularly over the last 4 years the world has seemed to press down on us with such extreme force and that we needed to be more metabolically responsive so i've i think since arriving at the bma i've tried to put in place mechanisms that have allowed the museum to move more quickly with exhibitions acquisitions and public programs 
So it felt like we were part of the conversation. And that's been, you know, gratifying um, and also deeply challenging because we weren't as an institution built to operate that quickly. So our systems aren't as quick. Even people who work at the museum aren't accustomed to that kind of metabolism. So it takes a tremendous amount of work and socialization um, to demonstrate the value of moving at the speed of the world. Um, but I think that that's, that's immensely, immensely important. In terms of COVID-19 and what it's revealed about museums, you, you know, for me, um, our frailties and vulnerabilities were sort of immediately shown. So, so I think when institutions had to close, and I think we're staring into the face of exactly that again. I think maybe it's, it's, it's timely for me to note on this podcast that quite literally yesterday, we announced that we were closing four whole wings in the museum in order to partner with the governor in attempting to control the spread of COVID-19 across the state of Maryland. So we are not quite back to where we were in March or April, but we're getting awfully close to that position. And I think that there's a dawning realization that um, a period of closure is again on the horizon. So I think it was catastrophic financially for many revenue dependent institutions the first time around. If it happens again, it's really difficult to see the depth of the economic impact. So, so places like, I don't know, just to use random examples, SF MoMA, MoMA, the Met have for decades, if not centuries enjoyed amazing attendance and consequent revenue, but it's highly, highly dependent upon people coming through the door. Um, so what was formerly an enormous strategic advantage has been revealed by COVID-19 as an enormous vulnerability. So that, that's one sort of self-evident observation. I think from our perspective as a civic, a free civic institution, um, we found that people coming through the door and the money they spend is less material to our solvency than um, you know, other more revenue-driven institutions. So if you look at our structure, um, we have a very strong and supportive board. We have a good endowment that performs extraordinarily well. We have good financial disciplines. Um, we don't depend upon the money that people spend when they walk in the door because we're principally free. Um, and our benefits are provided by the city. So there's this kind of accidental unicorn financial structure to the BMA, which was in part by design and um, in part luck that is allowing us to differently weather the COVID-19 period. Um, and while I think it's, it's not invulnerable, there are, there's a lot that we need to do to bolster ourselves, especially if we have to close again. I think this period of time has taught me the value of having a very large endowment on one hand because it provides for creative liberty, but it also provides for a level of protection from the unpredictable, like this moment. So, um, and then on the other hand, I think, and I think you were gesturing, Heidi, towards this, this issue of um, sort of the what Janetta call, who we're very fortunate to call our strategic advisor, would call the, the vice grip of a joint pandemic. So, COVID-19 is thrown into high relief um, inequities in the United States um, based in large part on um, race, gender, and economics. And so 
we're seeing the lowest paid um, front of house staff entrusted with running the museum, um, interfacing with the public and guarding the art being one undercompensated and two overexposed to danger. And I think it, that that is the existential crisis that we find ourselves in that, that idea that we, we exist as institutions with a certain set of progressive ideals that are often inscribed into our mission statements. So explicit commitments to equity and diversity and justice. But then the question becomes, how are you actually living those principles vis-a-vis the family within your museum that drives your program? And I think that that, that was the, that was the big moment of the asymmetry between who we say we are and the way that we behave behind the scenes to me became irreconcilable um, during, particularly during the pressures of COVID-19. And I would like to see the BMA evolve over time into an institution that lives and breathes its mission rather than simply mounting exhibitions that seem to illustrate a mission. I think that's the clearest way I can put it. I think that we saw kind of a perfect storm this year uh, of all of these issues kind of coming together. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, um, and I, <laughs> of course, I spent a long time talking about the ethics and philosophies of deaccessioning, and I don't want to commit this entire podcast to unpacking that. But I do think it's very fascinating to look at the, the sort of spectrum of possible approaches among museum directors, curators, collectors, and philanthropists to the question of deaccessioning and its relationship to the very foundation of museums. So sort of without tethering myself to any of those um, philosophical or political positions, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you might find a curator or director who fundamentally disagrees with deaccessioning in principle, um, believes that institutions should buy and accept gifts and not deaccession principally because we history can't be foretold. You never know what might have value or relevance. And so everything should be kept in view of that unknowable eventuality. I think that that's one sort of extreme position. Um, another extreme position on the other end might be something like um, collecting institutions like every other institution in white dominated society are expressions of um, a white-centered culture. And the, the, the collections are illiquid illustrations of that tendency to hoard and keep treasure. And, and um, the only just way forward is to turn some of those illiquid assets into liquid assets in order that we can begin to exercise principles of equity and justice in the present. So that's sort of on the left end, a very extreme position. And then I think somewhere in the middle is this concept that, um, and I think this, this abides across many museums in this country. And these are pretty simple observations that I think can lead to a positive path. Um, the BMA, other institutions have too much art. We have way too much art. Um, and we show only a de minimis percentage of it. And on the other hand, we are pretty wildly undercapitalized and the scratching and clawing for fundraising on a, on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis. And um, some of that scratching and clawing limits our ability to achieve mission and vision through the work that we do. So 
So how then do you relate one to the other? If we have too much art and we're undercapitalized, how do you responsibly relate one to the other so that museums can find a more sort of mission-driven, solvent, less stressful course forward? I think that's the, those are a really big set of questions to me. They are big questions. And of course, as a longtime museum insider, I can understand the, the texture and tenor of the complexities and, and the differentiation between the two sides of the spectrum, which you detailed. You know, and it's really inside baseball talk, right? Yeah. I mean, for, for the general public, uh, I don't know that anyone can, can understand kind of the, the shades of difference between, you know, what we can understand as these diametrically different positions. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I agree with you. And it's really fascinating sometimes to talk to um, people, I, I guess I would refer to as highly intelligent, highly literate non-specialists. So if you if you talk with them about deaccessioning, and I did this recently with a, um, an interviewer um, talking with me for NPR, and he said, so I'm just, I'm going to, I don't really know your business, but let me just see if I can get this straight. And he said, well, so you're saying that you have too much art and you don't have enough money and you're not paying your uh, front of house staff enough. And you continue to charge for changing exhibitions, which pushes people away. Um, and you aren't open during hours where normal working people can come. And in order to solve those and various other problems, you want to sell three objects for X amount of money that will allow you, among other things, to pay people a living wage and feed their families. And I said, you know, that's essentially, yes, that, that's, that's the objective. And he Good said, synopsis, yeah. I just don't <laughs> understand why anybody would ever say no to that. That doesn't make sense to me. From the perspective of a thinking person, that is crazy. So that, I, I found that illuminating. Yes, yeah. me too. You outline the two kind of diametrically different um, positions on, on deaccessioning. And 2020 was, as we've said, a, a complicated year. And so, you know, the organization that governs museum directors in North America, the Association of Art Museum Directors, decided in the last, uh, I don't know, six months or whatnot to uh, to loosen the, the strings around what deaccessioning funds could be used for on a temporary basis uh, to allow institutions really kind of some room to breathe. And, and one of the things that, that you didn't say is that previously, if uh, a director of an institution um, decided to, with their board, um, deaccession objects, and they were done in such a way that the organization didn't approve them, you would basically get the equivalent of like a scarlet letter. Right. Um, and what that means is, you know, no one would lend you objects, no one would take your shows, uh, you're censored, you're, you know, you're put on a like a do not work with list. And and you're actually in a really interesting position running the Baltimore Museum, having come from the Rose, where in a funny way, you were almost on the other side of this conversation when your uh, university, Associated University, wanted to sell objects and you argued to keep them, right? Well, I, so I, can't, I cannot take credit for that victory. That's often um, slightly misinterpreted. So in fact, I was recruited to direct the Rose 
um, after that that riddle had been solved and um, the former president of the university had left, a new president had been appointed, Fred Lawrence, um, who also happened to be a lawyer. He was able to resolve the dispute between the Rose Board of Advisors um, and the university. Nothing was sold. And in the aftermath of that resolution, I was then brought in to direct the museum. So it was a great, okay. happy resolution, but I actually had nothing to do with it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good thing to um, to clarify because, yeah. you know, again, through the arc of history, uh, I mean, and, and I, you know, I knew a lot about all of that in my memory that was somehow um, in your victory column. So. Yes, yes. No, that, that that definitely does not belong in my victory column. The things that we did subsequently at the Rose, I'm very proud of, and I think were before their time, and then particularly getting the, and this is often forgotten too, when we when we were given, um, when we applied to be the commissioner for two, 2017 Venice Biennale with Mark Bradford, I did apply for that honor, and we won the commission when I was director of the Rose, not the director of the BMA. So I always like to say that too. It was what that yes. tiny little art museum that could in 2017 that, that won that honor. So as opposed to the behemoth BMA. So I think that's yes. as well. I remember that. So that's yeah. good. One of the things that I found really surprising uh, on the the day of the auction, and, and I had gone to Sotheby's in New York and I had looked at the Bryce Marden and the Clifford Still, and what was the third work that you had? Uh, Andy Warhol's Last Supper. Oh yes, of course, but that wasn't there. So, but the the Marden and the Still, and of course, Ollie Barker says that the works are not available. Talk about how that unraveled. Yeah. Um, well, that's a very long. That's a very long story, and I'm gonna. I'm going to try and illuminate it while treading as carefully as humanly possible around the story. So, um, and it's long, so I apologize for the monologue. Uh, so, we we had two um, very esteemed senior curators at the museum in Katie Siegel, who's our senior curator for programming and research, and our chief curator um, Asma Naim um, lead the deaccessioning process, and they worked alongside. There are 23 other curators in investigating the collection and um, identifying those three objects for deaccession. Um, we have, like any other institution, long and elaborate processes to vet such proposals. And so you, the first step is um, securing the approval of the entire curatorial staff, which as you can, as a former or probably still current curator yourself, you know that curators are not with absent opinions. So um, that was a unanimous approval. We then had to move through um, our contemporary sessions committee. Um, and that, that was, again, a supermajority approval. We then moved through our executive committee's vote. That was unanimous um, for all three objects. And finally, on October 1st, to our full board of trustees, and um, again, supermajority um, with very, very, very few de minimis um, votes of dissent on any of those three objects. Um, and in addition to the way that we were going to deploy the proceeds. Um, in addition to all of that, we probably had 15 meetings or so to socialize the concept. 
with various different groups of stakeholders. So we were on, by the time October 1st rolled around, we were on very firm footing. Um, we had already placed very significant news stories in the New York Times, which also featured um, affirmative, very strong affirmative statements from other museum leaders, um, prominent philanthropists, as well as AEMD. So, uh, you know, on October 1st, I think we felt that we were in very good shape. Um, the paintings were all unambiguously completely unrestricted. Um, we had moved through all the necessary protocols um, and actually it exceeded them all. Um, and we felt that we were in an excellent position to, to proceed um, with the sale. And um, so the fast forwarding, maybe two and a half, three weeks, um, as I think everybody within the art world is aware, and I'm going to try and be as self-critical as possible here. Um, okay. there, there was a considerable, uh, how, how should I phrase this appropriately? Um, a small but vocal minority of um, uh, historical BMA supporters who felt extremely strongly um, that despite our adherence to protocols and despite our adherence to um, AMD's resolutions, we should not um, dispense with what they took to be the central cultural patrimony of the museum, or as one person put it, the very columns of the museum itself. So I think that that comment illustrates for me a fundamental philosophical division. So for me, the BMA, like every institution, um, is actually not, they are not mechanisms, in my view, built principally to collect, protect, and interpret art. I think that they are institutions built of and for people. I think our principal assets are um, the people that run the museum, the people that have given to the museum, the artists that have made the work, and the people we serve. So, so while I think some museum professionals see a very um, see it in very black and white terms, museums exist to serve and preserve objects. I, I feel very strongly that that is not the case. I feel very strongly that we're built by and of and for people. Um, so, so. Around, around this question, I think that there, were, there was considerable and quite aggressive um, internal discussion about the direction we wanted to take. And sort of stepping back from it, I think what I would say is that the, the level of emotion um, is a good thing with respect to the relevance of a museum like the BMA in the context of Baltimore. So people on both sides of that divide really deeply care about the success of the institution. And while on the philosophical level, I do not agree with the basic tenets of the objection, what I will say is that everybody on both sides did voice an investment in those principles of equity, justice, and diversity that are the basis of the BMA's vision and a consequence of taking this action. So I don't believe there was considerable division around that point and the desired objectives. Um, that's, an, that's a very important point. Yeah. And that's a hopeful point. 
yes. for the field and the future. Yes. Yes, it is a hopeful point for the field and the future. Um, I do believe that that change is overdue by decades, if not centuries. And I'm not sure that a slow and steady progress in the direction, for instance, of proper and equitable compensation or a workforce behind the museum's walls that is properly um, and justly diverse is something that we can hang around and wait for. I think that um, I've, and I was talking with a trustee about this recently. We, the distinction between um, the slow historical habits of museums and the urgency that particularly front of house staffs um, feel at the moment is, is like whiplash. It's like, it's like an experiential whiplash. So if I'm on the Zoom call with the 160 people that work at the BMA, and the conversation is dominated by front of house staff who say, um, in a no particular order, I can't pay my rent. I don't know where the next meal is coming from. Um, I'm undercompensated and um, to perform a vital function. I guard priceless objects and I'm not valued sufficiently in that act. Um, and in addition to all of that, I'm being asked to do this in the grip of COVID-19. The urgency inscribed in that versus the position that, let's say, endowment dollars should be slowly and cautiously raised and um, works of art should never be sold for, for the purposes of, of, of you know, achieving a more equitable um, culture within our walls and a more accessible museum for our publics. I, that that is a that's a very difficult pill to swallow. And I think, yeah. you know, COVID nineteen again is throwing into high relief that whiplash. How we've always done it and what needs to change right the second so that people are honored. Yeah, and not even honored, but just seen. Right? Yeah, seen, heard, and taken care of properly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so the consequence of, of all of it will be, um, you know, for the BMA, we will, using the same time horizon, we'll raise that $55 million necessary in endowment to deliver those four points of fundamental vision. Um, and as you know, we've, we've paused on those three sales. Um, the objects are being returned to the BMA. Like every other museum, we'll review deaccessioning across all, all our collecting areas. And we'll always do that with a view towards diversifying the canon in each one of those collecting provinces. Um, but I think in, you know, in the short term, our approach to deaccessioning will be necessarily quite conservative, but our fundraising drive around endowment for these, for these principles uh, is gonna be extremely aggressive. I think that's the right strategy and I can't help though feel frustrated on your behalf that plenty of other museums have brought to auction within the last round of auctions, you know, significant works of art with, you know, zero attention. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think, um, I think that's true. And I think that that's fair. Um, I also think, that, you know, part of the, my principle in trying to negotiate this period for myself and for the BMA is to, 
acknowledge that I don't know the, or understand the conditions in other institutions or the mandates of those directors to keep the um, ship properly floating and heading in the correct direction. So um, sure, I think that there's some level of injustice around the scrutiny we got, but I think it had a great deal to do with um, how direct and loud we were about the consequences of taking this action, where we were going to put those monies. And if you read- That's a, what I think too. Yeah, you know, if you read a lot of the criticism, um, you'll find a variant on a particular phrase repeated, which is, um, of course, I believe in the tenets of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but. Um, and I think in that, but there's a problem. And I, because um, while, while I feel extremely strongly that I need to remain aligned with AAMD because I believe in the peer group um, and I want to agitate for change from within, I do want to be very clear that I think guidelines around deaccession need to be substantially revisited. And I think institutions have to be substantially incentivized to meet the demands of the present with an emphasis on diversity and equity at its core. So I'm not sure what that looks like, what those, what those guidelines will eventually emerge as. Um, but, but that basic principle of too much art undercapitalized, I think needs to be really carefully analyzed to allow museums to do more of the good work in their communities. So um, I think the next 18 months is gonna be quite telling on that front. What do you think museums can do tactically to be relevant today? Um, I mean, I think oh, so many things, but um, I guess when it comes to the exercising a vision, I think it has to be done very consistently across a system in order to achieve sustainable change. So the way I guess we would describe that at the BMA is to say, it isn't enough to have a diverse and equitable exhibition acquisition and public program strategy. You also need to apply the same principles um, when you're making vendor decisions, when you're making investment decisions, when you're building a staff and when you're building your board. And I think if you do all of that extremely consistently, on a relentless day-to-day -day basis, eventually after X number of years, you'll realize a changed institution. And our horizon line for that is the next 20, 30 months. And we think if the money is raised aggressively enough, then that change is realizable. Um, and then I would also say that it's really important to find a way of being properly dialogic with your community. So, you know, Baltimore is a 68% black city. And, um, and it has an absolutely extraordinary creative core. And if you look at those moments when we've achieved the most extreme expressions of relevance, it's usually preceded by a moment of close listening. So a, a really good example of that is um, ancient history. It was, I think, 1938, and I forget who was the director, um, but the director at that time issued a survey across the city of Baltimore and asking a series of really simple questions. What is it you would like to see the BMA do? And overwhelmingly and unsurprisingly, the community at that time said, we would like an exhibition of art by African-Americans. So in 1939, the BMA was the first museum in this country to devote um, a group exhibition exclusively to the work of African-American men and women. So that was a consequence of the institution listening to the city and then responding. So 
The problem is that if you look at the, the history of our exhibitions and acquisitions, almost invariably, if we do a major show, we buy from that exhibition. And in the case of that, that show, we didn't. So then in sort of 2018, I believe it was, we decided to, you know, very self-critically um, examine that moment in the BMA's history and try to constitute a show around the moment. And so the set, when we dug into those possibilities, we realized that we had virtually no work to illustrate that moment in history through the collection. And so it was largely a sort of story-based ephemera exhibition with more minor works of art brought into the collection subsequently to try and animate this, this moment. So I, I think listening and responding is enormously important. And again, I think museums are built to an incredible degree in over decades, if not centuries, on this idea of expertise and um, specialization and processes and protocols that are largely unknown, set aside from the mainstream public. So I think the more we can break down that barrier, the more effective we'll be. But that that is extreme that is extremely tough for museums, I believe. When you go to someone else's museum, what what's exciting for you to see? What makes it feel like a, a time worth a day worth you know dedicating to that or, or time well spent? Interesting. Um, you know, I remember of course, this seems like a long time ago now because like this is no longer part of my routine. I don't go to other museums, I don't travel on and I don't see um, art in other places to the extent that I used to. But I think I remember those moments where a either a presentation of art challenged me in such a way that I wanted to return with the experience to the BMA and change something we were doing to make it more relevant or exciting or different or inventive based on what I had seen elsewhere. And I think when, when you have those moments of um, sort of peer-to-peer -peer recognition that makes you, that it motivates you to be better as a director, that's enormously exciting. And I do remember, you know, I was like everybody else, I'm sure, filled with envy when MoMA reinstalled its galleries with a far greater emphasis on work by people of color. And I realized the absolutely extraordinary quality of work in their collection. Um, so that I have vivid memories of particular objects taking my breath away and um, sort of being grateful for the experience and the extent to which it would embolden me and inflect my work at the BMA. Could you share an experience of one of them and describe what it felt like? Well, so I won't do... I'll, I'll give you um, a sort of a slightly, I suppose, um, uh, a melancholy version of, of that. So, and this wasn't, this didn't have to do with MoMA. This had to do with, um, I think it was 2000, I'm sure you saw this show, Heidi. Uh, I think it was 2017 to 2018, Freeze London. And um, it was a David's Warner show of Kerry James Marshall's painting. Yeah. And um, I remember going upstairs and seeing this amazing untitled painting of a neoclassical interior um, populated exclusively by 
people of color in various different um, guises, ages. There were teachers, there were couples, there were um, uh, children sitting, there were you know people contemplating. So it was an incredible of, of many generations. So it was a a very deliberately various group of people doing various different things in this highly traditional environment that seemed to be owned by the um, by the visitors. And um, we, the BMA at that point, tried extremely hard um, to buy that painting. And I, think I remember writing an email, I wrote a letter, I, I flew to London, I had a pleading meeting um, to no avail. And, um, and it ended up actually going to Glenstone, which is, which is ironically also in Maryland. And so that painting exists in, in the um, collection of Mitch and Emily Rails. And it's an extraordinary thing, but it lingered with me. And, um, and I think it lingered because I took the painting to be not just a proposition, but a demand or a vision for a different kind of a future, what a civic museum could look like with a little conviction, invention and will. And it was actually that painting that was the basis for the, our whole endowment for the future concept and the sale of these three paintings to achieve those four points of vision. So I, um, I think about that painting all the time and other, you know, other comparable objects because I think that they represent incentives to action as opposed to just objects to be contemplated. So I'm, I'm very interested in, I suppose, an experience of art that seduces you, takes your breath away, but then gives you an idea that would have otherwise been impossible or prompts language that otherwise you would not have as a writer, as a thinker, as an art historian. So I do, and I suppose this sounds a little bit retrograde, but I still do believe in not exactly a transcendent experience because I believe it to be very terrestrial, like very um, human, sentient, grounded. Um, but I do really believe in objects that produce ideas that could only be produced that way. So I, I, the Kerry James Marshall is a really good example of that for me. Such a good answer. And I love listening to people talk about art. I mean, my most favorite thing, of course, is looking at art with other people. Yeah. And in this time where we can't really do that very much, um, particularly compared to how often we used to do it and how extensively and, you know, often without any kind of real acknowledgement about the privilege of, of being able to do that. Uh, listening to you describe that painting and having my own memory of walking up those stairs mm -hmm. and coming into that space and talking about works of art as a call to action uh, because they, they do of course facilitate periodically that that transcendent ability but they also remind us of the fervor with which we need to approach our lives and um the yeah it just reminds me also of you know the the power of the platform and i just want to end by saying that uh, i admire the stand that you're taking and I know that it's not easy and I myself have found uh, circumstances where 
my intention and, and the intention that I was putting forth for our institution were profoundly misunderstood, um, not just by our local community, but somehow the broader public or um, its representation in the press. And um, I wanted to invite you on today to have that kind of fellowship of um, working on behalf of the greater good and how sometimes it's um, painful. But well, you, I really important. appreciate it. And I've really, really enjoyed it. And I'm um, not surprised in the least. I know that you're a fellow traveler with very similar convictions. So it was a pleasure to spend 45 minutes chatting about it. It feels even more urgent to me now. So thank you. Thanks for your time today, Chris. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Conversations about art is part of art a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simon Illa. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.